Welcome to another Matrix Care podcast from the software leaders for out-of-hospital and long-term care providers. Matrix Care is dedicated to sharing knowledge and building awareness among providers across the spectrum, from home care to skilled nursing to senior living and life plan communities. My name is Dr. DeVore, and as Director of Enterprise Interoperability at Matrix Care, I'm not only honored, I'm thrilled to be the host for today's session as we talk about the interop unfair advantage. That's our topic as we listen in on a conversation between Naveen Gupta, Vice President of Home Care Solutions for Matrix Care, and our special guest, Paul Wilder, Executive Director at Commonwealth Health Alliance. Paul has two decades of proven hard work in health information exchange. And we're joined also by Nick Knowlton, Vice President of Strategic Initiatives for ResMed Software as a Service. Nick has been on the Commonwealth Board for six years and currently serves as the board chairman. So, Naveen, the microphone is all yours. Thank you, Doc. Uh, always appreciate you hosting this. Uh, welcome, Paul and Nick. Uh, as I said, this is extremely exciting for me to be able to do this particular episode. Uh, for our audience, uh, we will be spending time today with two thought leaders in the interoperability space. Um, they are leaders within the Commonwealth Health Alliance, and we'll get to know them a little bit more and hear the Commonwealth story. Um, Commonwealth Health Alliance, for those of you that are not familiar, it's a not-for-profit trade association and you know, really a simple vision, uh, thinking through how health data uh, and the exchange of health data, regardless of the care setting where it occurs. And it was founded in 2013 with a handful of uh, IT companies uh, looking to solve the problem of interoperability within of the healthcare space. So with that, um, you know, I'm going to begin by, you know, uh, getting us to know Paul a little bit better. Paul, I had an opportunity to look into your profile and your background. Um, you know, certainly you were with Philips um, prior to this transition, and it just so happens uh, I did spend several years with Philips myself. Um, you know, you were with um, the New York eHealth Collaborative and, you know, HIE. You've been on roles there as well. McKesson, Fuji, and G Healthcare. So certainly you've got just an impressive resume. Um, you know, in this particular uh, chapter of your career, you could have certainly picked many other organizations to be a part of. Uh, why did you choose Commonwealth? Well, I pre- first of all, I appreciate the, the high praise and high marks there. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> there, there were options, but I, I would say that my, my heart is in what Commonwealth does, and I, I target over here pretty quickly. Uh, you mentioned a bit of my background, and you'll see in there a kind of interoperability story, a little bit of an EHR story, trying to get primary care providers and specialty and other providers to use EHRs in meaningful ways, build patient portals and things like that. Uh, but when I was looking, uh, I was actually looking. It kind of fell fell out of the sky a little bit that uh, when the previous executive director, Jayton, was leaving, I was having a conversation with him, Phillips. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, I wonder who's, who's going to go over there. And I said, I'm not, I'm not saying it might be me, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go apply. Um, I was having a great time at Phillips. We were making a lot of great strides in interoperability and imaging and, and other areas. Uh, but what drew me over here was the ability to do that at a, at a much larger scale uh, across many entities. I, I have a personal, many personal stories that say that you know, interoperability is a thing that I want to try and make better or, or solve the problem. I don't know if it's a problem anymore. It just needs a little bit of more tweaking here and there. It's kind of on its way. Uh, but I saw this idea of, okay, there's these vendors there. 
they're trying to do great things. Uh, I have some personal philosophies and efforts that I've done in the past that I think would help move the ball. And it just seemed like a great place to be. And the more, more and more I met people, I really saw this camaraderie, uh, this lack of competition on this effort. It really was a, a vendor community effort to get the job done to, for the benefit of providers, patients, and the entire community. So I was thrilled that the opportunity presented itself and jumped right in head first. Yeah, Paul, I think, um, you know, certainly your background and, and, you know, your passion for this comes, comes through. Uh, I liked how you described it as a vendor community effort. And uh, in large part, I can see um, the influence, you know, you and the organization will have really at a national level. I mean, you know, no, no bigger platform to be able to really find an outlet for that passion. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's great uh, that you're now leading this effort here along with uh, the other folks uh, part of Commonwealth Health Alliance. And so, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to, to hearing a little bit more about, you know, as you're, you know, it's been four months or five months, and as you're beginning to unpack this and look through strategy and what does the next sort of chapter look like, you know, we'll, uh, you know, we'll hear that from you in a little bit. Great, thank Nick. You. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Nick, you've been part of the Alliance since the, the genesis and founding. And, uh, you know, and I sometimes wonder, you know, where do you even find time for all of this? You know, you've uh, not only are you a colleague, you're a friend of mine now. And uh, I have seen you uh, just, you know, how thoroughly passionate you are about solving this problem. Um, help us understand what were the early days like and, you know, what were you trying to solve? Well, that's a great question to me, you know. Um let's talk first about the problem we're solving. So the Alliance really got its genesis in the fact that the U.S. is one of the few well-developed countries out there that does not have a nationwide system for patient identification. And as you're well aware, you know, if you want to exchange health information on patients, uh, being able to identify whether Nick Knowlton and provider location A is the same Nick Knowlton and provider location B is a critical problem to solve. So back in 2012, a couple of vendors, uh, mainly at that time it was Cerner and McKesson, started talking about this and quickly decided that, you know, there was uh, uh, nothing standing in the way of solving this problem other than willpower. Uh, all the technology existed, but a couple of uh, large vendors coming together could bring some scale to it. Uh, so if you fast forward that about six months, you know, we, um, uh, as a group of seven vendors at the time, got together and announced that we were going to solve this problem uh, on behalf of the health tech space. Mm -hmm. um, and very quickly after making that announcement, uh, we pivoted to how to make uh, this patient identification uh, solution really usable and bring it home to providers and patients alike. You know, why would anybody care? Nobody looks inside their EHR and says, gosh, I wish I had access to a nationwide patient identification system. They say things like, I have Nick here in the ER. He has a fresh zipper scar on his chest, and he's unconscious. It is ridiculous that we've invested tens of billions of dollars in our health technology infrastructure as a country, but I can't, as a provider, get access to uh, what surgery he had at a hospital across town. Or, you know, Nick came into my office today, and he couldn't remember what his uh, ER visit really constituted last weekend or if any of his medications have changed. Right. So. Solving for those type of problems involves other solutions, right? You have to be able to fetch healthcare information on behalf of providers, uh, or if you're a patient, you have to fetch healthcare information on your own behalf. Uh, and you also have to not just understand those patient identities, but you need to know where to look. So you need the robust record locator service. 
Um, and by having those three solutions together, you can kind of tie it together end to end to say, if I have a patient in front of me and for whatever reason I need additional healthcare information on where they've been and what's happened to them through their journey, right. uh, I'll be able to uh, get it. So I think that uh, was the start of it. Um, you know, we can come back in a little bit more on where the alliance is going next because once you have uh, patient identity established and once you have uh, record location service established, um, there's really not much that you can't do uh, because the sky's the limit for the types of transactions that you can run over that network uh, to help patients take care of themselves. But to address your question about passion, um, it really dawned on me about a year and a half after we formed the Alliance, uh, sitting right. with some of the other folks that uh, had been in there on the first day. Uh, we started talking about our own, um, you know, personal histories. Um, you know, I will say that, you know, it's well known that the uh, former CEO of Cerner, who's now passed on, this was a big personal passion uh, uh, for him, too, having witnessed his wife uh, carrying around shopping bags full of medical records as she went to oncology visits. Um, I have the own stories around my mother gathering information for oncology visits and later for uh, hospice. Uh, one of the other folks who was in on day zero actually lost one of his cousins because healthcare information was not at the provider's fingertips in an ER setting. Mm -hmm. So all of these things mean something to us uh, personally, and I think Paul alluded to it in that first question you know, about having personal experiences about what happens when healthcare data does not flow around the needs of the patient. There's right. a lot of bad things that happen, and almost all of us have bumped into that before. I'm sure, you know, you and Doc could also talk about things that have hit you all personally, too. So um, it's very um, it, it's very important to me personally, but it's also, you know, based on the position that uh, we as stakeholders in this industry have, it's important to me that, you know, we all come together and solve it as well. Right. Nick, that's a, that's a great answer, you know. So I think, you know, not only just, you know, it's birthed from, you know, seeing real personal needs. Uh, but more importantly, I think, you know, what, what really amazes me was this, this problem certainly existed well before 2013 or 2012. And, you know, it, it, it really required a group of people to take action. And, um, and you know, just reading the story and what's transpired since then uh, is nothing short of amazing. And, and you would agree. I think, you know, we're still getting started. Um, there are the number of use cases can continue to evolve. And, uh, you know, it is, it is tremendously, tremendously exciting. Uh, so, Paul, um, you know, when I, when I looked through a little bit more with the Health Alliance, um, you know, from um, its early days, uh, being in four states to now, you know, 50 states. It's gone from uh, a few million individual records in there to, um, you know, north of 65 million, you know, with millions, hundreds of millions of records now exchanged. Uh, the, the, the footprint in terms of providers is, is if you look at the map that's on your site, you know, it's, it's faster than every, every, um, every corner. At least that's what it feels like. In my mind, I see there's sort of like three phases or three waves. Uh, and again, this is just my view of it. You know, the first wave, you know, in my mind was the, the birth and the genesis of it. The seven key organizations uh, coming together, 2012, 2013. Uh, the second, and, and this was really, uh, you know, re revolved around defining the standards, the technology, the governance, and, and beginning to get that going. 
The second wave uh, was the adoption. So from the original four states, uh, you know, from the, uh, the traditional EHRs to the post-acute uh, EHRs and others getting integrated in there. And then, you know, and that was 2016. And 2018, 2019, as I saw, was really the birth of the connectors and care quality, et cetera. So, um, and again, hopefully I'm framing that correctly. Paul, how do you see it? What, what, do you, what do you see is the evolution? What is this next wave of growth for the Alliance and where do you see it headed? No, that's a great question. So, yeah, you look historically, you have kind of the big early adopter vendors. Fortunately, they were big, so we had scale and we could get the uh, specifications made in a way that would be usable by many entities going forward. What we're seeing now is more non-traditional things, right? So you were looked at, uh, as Nick mentioned, Cerner and others, kind of the, the EHR vendors. And now we're seeing a lot of uh, secondary care, tertiary care, home care, as you guys are well familiar with, uh, patient access, uh, all the things that would go around care. Uh, we haven't really seen yet the caregiver apps, but I th you know, they're coming uh, to be able to manage you know, both my parents and then my kids' care as well to be able to be a proxy for them. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of interest really in things that aggregate and present APIs to be able to do this with relative ease. It's a very different uh, set of vendors that I talk to every day now. They're a lot smaller. Um, they're often early stage or you know, late investment stage companies. They're looking for the next kick. They've been working on helping patients or providers uh, carry stuff into their record or carry stuff into their tool to do something. And they've been doing that one-on-one -on -one strategy of, okay, I have a practice. Uh, they bought my product. I must integrate. And now they're saying, hey, is there a better way? And I think we do present that better way, right? So you now can... One, you have a bigger market. You have all these people that are connected, exchanging records that you can tap into. And two, they can feed their, their applications with the same data the EHR is fed. So if you think right. of clinical decision support, patient monitoring, uh, all the things that you want to do, they can, they can feed more data and make it more intelligent, right? Making data into insights is a, is a key for the future. Now that we're moving all the stuff around. Let's make sure we can do something actual with all that data. So we're, still, we're, we're thrilled to see this new wave of vendors pop up. And even this last, uh, last two weeks, running into him, signed up with five, five vendors that probably were on, on no one's radar three years ago. So it's, a, it's quite, a, quite an impressive change going on right now. So, Paul, what I'm hearing you say is, you know, at least in the next wave, you're beginning to see, you know, smaller uh, technology companies uh, looking at data and driving insights and beginning to innovate around that? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, a fair amount of them are trying to figure out what to do with it. And the nice thing is um, now they have a much larger data pool to work with surrounding that patient. Uh, when, when Nick mentioned kind of the record location and the linking of patients, the key thing that Wakama will set up was it set up as a patient-centric network, right? The, right? the patient is opting into exchange and then a bunch of things link around them. So you see patient portals and uh, PHRs, patient health records, uh, you know, they're also very patient-centric. So they naturally plug into our technology really well. Uh, and then you're seeing, uh, you know, we know PHRs are a tough market to be in. There's been many that have started and stopped over time. But we're starting to see newer vendors that are taking the patient-directed exchange idea and then adding services around it. So you're seeing more telehealth. You're seeing more coaching. 
And now they can coach with data. It's not just, hey, you should go get your, your well, wellness exam or, hey, now it's time to go get the flu, flu shot. It's with intelligence. Oh, you've gotten your flu shot. Here's what's next. Or you did your well visit. What I can see in your data is you might want to go see a specialist, an XYZ, if that primary care provider didn't mention that to you. So these extra little data safety nets are building around the provider and the patient to help us do our own directed care, which I think is, is the next wave. You know, we talk health 1.0, health 2.0, health 3.0. Yep. And I see health 3.0 as, you know, not just a, a patient control, but a patient directed healthcare environment. Uh, very similar to what we tried to do on the provider and the payer side to say, hey, let's get rid of the gatekeepers and allow you to start directing things. But now you can do it with a lot more intelligence, which really helps us bend that quality and cost curve in the future. Yeah, that that is really exciting, Paul. Um, you know, if you if you look at, I love the the, the thinking around patient directed. Certainly, the emphasis now. Um, you know, we we talk a lot about acute and post acute, but more pre acute, which is essentially, you know, health and wellness. You know, being able to manage chronic diseases and using uh, technology and insights to be able to help people. Um, you know, you know, really be able to have just healthier lives and, and be able to really manage the health, health more proactively. And, and, and I'm sure, uh, you know, at the genesis of it, you know, maybe the, 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 the idea was to be able to help exchange of information, but uh, looking at the new use cases that are being birthed as a result of the network that, that's really been created and the power of that network coming to, to bear fruition. So uh, certainly very, very exciting. Paul. And I just can't wait to see, you know, what, what really comes out of it. Uh, me neither. It's, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, you talk about uh, patient-directed and data. You know, a lot, of it's, a lot of it, quite frankly, is helping with the administrative stuff of healthcare. And a simple example, um, I wanted to get the, my clinical data out of my primary care provider practice, just to take a look at it. Mm-hmm. And when I saw it, there was nothing earth-shatteringly good or bad in there. I was actually, I'm a pretty normal, healthy, I'm not a super athlete, nor am I uh, unhealthy in any way, shape, or form. I have general asthma, you know, basic stuff. Mm-hmm. But there was there was one measure in there that was out of range, right? And if I called my provider, uh, and they called me, actually, they said, oh, everything's fine, go ahead. But they, they didn't go into that one piece of data because in relevance from the grand scheme of all my data, it wasn't that important, but I still wanted to know it. It's a thing that I track because right. I like to know if that measure is going the right way or the wrong way. And they wouldn't really know, quite frankly, it's not their fault that over the last 10 years, I've been tracking that thing because they're my newest primary care provider that I picked up two years ago, right? So I'm interested in it, and it helps me be able to get that data as I have interest in my data, very similar to banking, right? right? For a while, it was if you're wealthy and have enough money to give to someone, you hand it to an advisor and you walk away and you hope you retire well. And democratization of financial services allowed all of us to participate in our financial well-being. 401ks are easier. You have easier access to your portals now. It's easier to detect fraud. All those access points allow us to manage our finances, and we're starting to see that move over to clinical care as well. Yeah, that's great, great, great analogy. You know, it's not difficult for, for us to see the connection and the benefits, you know, to the patient, uh, to the provider, and to the payer. So, uh, yeah, it certainly is interesting, uh, you know, phase that we are, we're getting into. Um, part of part of the growth, uh, certainly, Nick. You know, uh, as, you know, I rattle off certain statistics uh, as the adoption has grown. Um, certainly, in 2018 and 2019, the big plays were around integration with the Care Quality Network, uh, and then build out of this Commonwealth Connector. 
um, help our audience understand a what exactly is that, and b you know what was the need for uh, wanting to then you know connect and partner with those networks. A great question. I mean, so you know, care quality is I think primarily first and foremost a framework. Um, it you know, was formed really as a convener to establish uh, rules of the road for better interoperability, but it's not a network in the sense that Commonwealth is. So, you know, Commonwealth uh, puts together and manages a technology-based network for, you know, as Paul uh, mentioned, patient-centric interoperability, uh, to sum it up uh, cleanly. Uh, Care Quality was really formed to help establish some of the rules of the road for how networks uh, can talk to each other and, um, you know, stipulations for providers that wanted to say they uh, could implement on those specifications. Um, so there's a lot of great interoperability and great, you know, networks that are represented under the care quality umbrella. Um, but, you know, this distinction is important because in the early days uh, when care quality first launched, a lot of people said, well, care quality and Commonwealth are going to compete with each other. Right. Well, um, I had the, you know, unique position of being on uh, the earliest iteration of Care Quality Steering Committee uh, while I was a board member for Commonwealth, so it was pretty easy to see, no, these are two very different uh, things, but we should absolutely be uh, working together to tackle uh, healthcare interoperability problems at a greater scale. So you fast forward a couple of years through some, you know, conversations back and forth between the organizations as they grew to have uh, the scale where connecting could have an impact and have a real, um, you know, influence on how care is delivered, um, we're able to, you know, match up a lot of uh, things that were uh, designed in a similar fashion at the technical level and say, hey, we can pilot a connection and we can actually show very quickly that not only is that connection uh, going to work to move data from, uh, you know, Commonwealth into networks or other uh, point organizations uh, that exist under the carry quality umbrella, um, but this would actually scale very well across both of our organizations. So, you know, you don't very often see this in interoperability where you do a pilot for something of that magnitude, and then, you know, three, four months later, you're, you're talking about um, how you can turn it on in GA and scale uh, across the country for it. But that's, in effect, you know, the way that this has evolved. So, um, now you have uh, networks that represent upwards of, you know, 100 million patients uh, able to speak to each other in a common language. Um, it was really impactful so that provider organizations and patients didn't have to log into multiple different areas to see uh, information on their patients. Um, one of the founding principles that we had inside of Commonwealth was that to whatever extent possible, uh, these services needed to be built into the provider's native workflows, uh, whatever that meant for the given care location, because we as vendors and putting the alliance together had all seen um, the downside of asking providers to change their workflows to access information, and that is a market decrease in adoption and usability. So by normalizing these connections and allowing providers to stay in whatever system they're using to access healthcare data, um, by expanding that network, you expand the power of their own tools and you expand uh, the power of them interacting with, you know, uh, patient information uh, from other locations at a whole different level. And I know that you've been a part of this and seeing what some of the customers who have, you know, adopted this are. It's changed, you know, 
um, relationships between uh, providers and their referral sources. It's changed uh, caregivers' daily lives in terms of knowing what they can expect when they go out to a patient's home. And they're not sitting there worried about, well, I wonder if my one referral source is using this vendor or that vendor. It's more about doing things in that patient-centric mindset where it's better for all the patients, it's better for all the providers, and frankly, it's better for, you know, how our country delivers healthcare at scale. Yeah, Nick, I think, uh, you know, I think you said it well, you know, it, it, it is patient-centric, and I think the whole idea was being agnostic um, um, to the different platforms that might be out there. Uh, I think what's driven adoption in part uh, also is the fact, you know, and you've alluded to that, is that the whole idea that they did not need to change workflows or change the systems that they were really using. And, um, you know, having that as a, as a founding principle to, to drive that, uh, you know, really in my, in my mind was really seeing that as a, a as a bit of a success there. Um, so Nick, you know, I think we've, you know, looked at the trajectory of the growth, um, you know, for, um, providers, um, certainly, you know, within, within matrix care and bright, we've got, a very large footprint within post-acute particularly. Why should tech vendors um, and providers care about this? You know, what, what is the benefit to them? And, and I think we've talked a lot about that, but it'd be, it'd be good to, to just hear from you, um, you know, in terms of adoption, you know, here's why you need to be a part of Commonwealth Health Alliance. So great question. You know, I think there's a, there's a couple of different um, value points I'd like to point out. Um, <clears throat> number one, a lot of the federal level discussions around healthcare interoperability always comes back to tech specifications. You know, you hear about the ONC and CMS pushing out a thousand pages of rules about a year ago for what vendors must support. And they're doing this because they're trying to solve healthcare interoperability problems. But what doesn't come riding along with those specifications is typically all the other things that you need to make interop work. What we talked about at the uh, top of the uh, call here, you know, on patient identity and record location services, uh, governance, uh, consent management, all of those things that nobody thinks about when they think about interoperability. You know, Commonwealth's in a pretty interesting position to uh, help drive real-world adoption of, you know, tech specifications that in and of themselves are not um, incredibly powerful. So that's one angle. I think the other uh, key angle is um, because of the architecture of the alliances network, um, not only can you turn what would have been a, a need to build and manage and maintain, you know, thousands uh, potentially of point-to-point interfaces, not only can you do that through a single interface, but if you have the correct architecture within, you know, your own vendor platform, you can technically share one interface to the alliance to accomplish what would have, you know, taken thousands or even tens of thousands of point-to-point interfaces to do. So I think that those are two, you know, really powerful uh, reasons for, you know, why vendors should care. Uh, the last one I think is most near and dear to my heart. Um, and one of the reasons that I, you know, came to be part of our organization, and that is um, an audience to be heard to solve, you know, healthcare challenges. So in post-acute, for instance, or, you know, as we now refer to it, out of hospital, um, you know, there's a lot of different workflow needs that aren't on the radar of, uh, you know, the federal powers that be that help set what some of the interop rules are. 
And by joining an alliance such as Commonwealth and having a seat at the table to speak with other uh, vendors, you know, we were able to leverage their collective experience to help break down some of these barriers to areas of healthcare that um, have not received the level of attention that they should uh, for helping uh, drive patient-centric interoperability. So I think there's, you know, multiple facets for uh, why tech vendors and, uh, frankly, other healthcare stakeholders should care and be a part of it. Okay, great. Nick, I think that's uh, well said. Uh, Paul, do you want to add anything to that? Do you, uh, you know, you, you know, I think Nick touched on a sort of three angles there, um, you know, certainly from the value that it creates um, and the, the problem that it solves to, you know, think about the alternative, which is creating point-to-point -point interfaces um, and, uh, and the workflows. Uh, anything, anything else that jumps jumps out at you? Yeah, what, one extra thing I would add is the, the the trust framework that's established as well, right? So the there's a technical framework of of specifications and uh, workflows and how things work, uh, but it also sets up a natural framework that goes past the boundaries of what where a lot of the regulations and legislative stuff stops in, in healthcare. Healthcare is, is, is generally perceived as very local, right? You think about mm -hmm. uh, your local primary care physician, your hospital networks. And in fact, a lot of the regulations that they follow are local as well. And that's the way it was set up uh, for many, many moons. That's a state issue more than a federal issue. Uh, what the problem that that causes is there are often uh, inconsistencies between those regulations that make it difficult to exchange without some sort of a a trust framework in between that allows it to occur. And the best analogy I can think of is if, if we all had our own rules, um, when I, I live in New Jersey, if I drove into New York, right, I, I, I took my test in New Jersey to drive my car. If we didn't have a national framework for, for some sort of rules of the road between states, I would pray, I'd be retested when I drove across the George Washington Bridge or through the Lincoln Tunnel yes. because New York doesn't trust the New Jersey driver's test. They'd say, well, we don't, we don't recognize that. You have to test again and get another one. And you don't want that. In healthcare, we, di we didn't have that problem solved yet. We have HIPAA, Cures Act, high tech, other things that are in saying, let's encourage exchange, but they're not quite fixing the legislative stuff. So what, what, what happens inside Commonwealth is the trust framework says, obey your local rules, right? So you, as a New Jersey provider, you, you record whether the, the patient in front of you has provided the consent to go access records. Right. And all the rest of the network, you have a duty to respond with the belief and trust that that entity has done what they have to do in their local community. Uh, so we're not, we're not writing 50 different rules and harmonizing them. We're saying you already know what yours are, and you can still coexist in this network without having to worry about the other side's rules. And that, that's a bigger deal than, than a lot of people give it credit for it goes well past uh, specifications and technology. Yeah, Paul, I, I love the analogy. Uh, <laughs> and, and you've actually given us two really good, good analogies, one with the finance industry and, and the other, you know, just with how, um, you know, just the rules uh, of engagement are and, and providing this framework that enables providers to, to coexist. Um, you know, there's one, one other topic, um, you know, I want to quickly touch on, Paul, and I'll, I'll, and I'll ask you this question. Uh, certainly, you know, when it comes to healthcare um, and the exchange of information, you know, over the wire, um, over various networks, both in flight and at rest, um, around the whole topic of security, right, and, uh, and privacy. So 
how how is Commonwealth? You know, what are the guardrails that Commonwealth has in place to ensure that the data exchange is is secure and 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 the privacy laws are are being upheld? Yeah, so security, privacy are of utmost importance for any kind of network, and this one in, in particular, right? Because we are looking at uh, elevated sensitive information. You know, financial information is sensitive, and we we think about our bank accounts. Uh, but your your medical or clinical history is a way of kind of re reestablishing who you are. You don't you know you don't you don't want that data to be captured in transit uh, or at rest, right? You want it to be uh, secure no matter where it goes. So there's a couple things. One that trust framework uh, it, it establishes the rules of the road of uh, follow locally and everybody respond. That's true, but it also uh, lays on top of it a technical framework. Uh, certificate management and modern internet-based things to make sure that data in transit is encrypted. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the providers of the data, the people responding, have their lockdown EHR. So we don't have any data at the center. And I think that's a, a big difference between Commonwealth and the regional or state HIEs, where there tends to be quasi-federated, right? Everybody has their data at the edge, but there's some data stored at the center. All we really have at the center is that patient-centric thing, a way of finding a person and linking them across to all the sources of data and only pulling from those sources when someone is authenticated on the other side and has the right permissions to go do that. So it's almost, uh, it's one of the most secure networks you're going to find. We also don't rely on computer matching of patients nor human matching of patients it's a bit of both, which I think right now is a more comfortable place to be, a logical place to be for privacy and security when we're matching a record across entities. The computer is suggesting matches, but the human, the clinician, the administrator, the nurse, the MD, they're looking at that record and saying, oh, yes, these suggested other records, that's the same person. So we're not relying on a, 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 an algorithm or heuristic that isn't is developed by some computer somewhere we are improving that computer algorithm to make better suggestions but there is a safety check in that humans are doing a lot of the the looking and making sure that things are at the right level of security and matching so, so we, we we believe it's a it's an incredibly secure network and uh i i rest well every night uh believing that that's so <laughs> great paul you know i think uh one really key piece of information that you shared is really you know unlike the state H- hies that might have in those data centers, information stored that this, the health alliance is truly a, a network. And um, so you have nodes within the network and you've got what it sounds like, you've got uh, a sort of rules or mapping tables that enable you to, to locate uh, using the location service, be able to locate where patient information, information is available. And, um, and I think, you know, without getting into the, into the technical you know, specifics, but, you know, looks like the ability to use um, you know, encryption, the right certificate management, et cetera, to ensure that information is, is authenticated and exchanged in, in the correct way. And finally, I think the piece that, that was also really important was the, you know, how the matching is essentially done, the combination of algorithm and human, uh, so that it's not one or the, or the other. So uh, thank you, Paul. I think uh, really great answer there. And I think it, it really um, helps people as you think about uh, participating within the the Commonwealth Health Health Alliance, you know how how is security uh, addressed? 
Um, uh, that's all I have really for today. I, I want to just give you a, a, a last opportunity. I'll start with Nick and I'll end with you, Paul. Um, Nick, any, any, any final things that you want to you wanna share uh, before, before we wrap up this, this episode of the podcast? Yeah, you know, Naveen, I think we covered a lot of territory today. I just think that we live in a very exciting time uh, for interoperability, especially in the out-of-hospital uh, settings. Um, the technology exists. The willpower exists. Uh, the frameworks, as Paul was discussing, exist. It's a really great time for folks out there to get connected. And, you know, as you and I are very fond of saying, uh, an educated provider is our best friend, knowing that they have options to improve their lives and the lives of their patients through interoperability. Um, if we can accomplish one thing, accomplishing that, you know, gets the ball rolling on um, unleashing the power of interoperability in general. Yeah, <laughs> that's great, Nick. Um, you know, in many ways, we're calling it an unfair advantage because, uh, you know, providers um, that have the benefit of being able to use it, it just drives better outcomes for them. Uh, Paul, any, any last, last minute uh, concluding thoughts? Uh, just, just one thing on the Alliance itself. Uh, we, are, we, we are a membership organization. So we have vendors and, and technology companies that join the Alliance to get interoperability services amongst each other. Uh, but for those who are looking into how to move forward or what to do, I did want to point out that even though uh, our, our certificates are private, you'd have to be in the network to be able to access the data and exchange with others. Most of our specifications and everything we do is very open. Uh, so if someone's curious, you know, definitely go over to our website at commonwealthalliance.org, uh, pull down the use cases, see what we're doing, and decide if you want to join in as well. I think uh, you'll find that uh, there's two documents there. There's a technical document that if you're really kind of on the geeky ones and zero side, is very interesting. And then there's a more of a use case document, which talks at a little bit of a higher level of I'm a patient who wants to do X or Y, what do I do? And gives kind of those workflows. So, uh, you know, that, that's all public and open. And uh, we recommend everybody use it as best they can to improve their own, own interoperability. Excellent, Thank Paul. You. Well, thank you, Nick, uh, for making time. Uh, certainly appreciate it. Paul, um, want to wish you all the very best as you sort of lead the next chapter of, of the Commonwealth Health Alliance. And thank you so much for making time for us today. Back to you, Doc. My pleasure. Thank you, Naveen and Nick uh, and Paul. What a wonderful time to listen in on a couple of thought leaders in this industry. I agree with Naveen. Interoperability is the unfair advantage uh, in this space. That concludes today's episode of the Matrix Care Podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit us at www.matrixcare.com for more information on our products and services. We'd love to hear from you. Give us feedback on iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast player is. And let us know everything from how to improve the podcast to future topics that you'd like to see discussed. On behalf of Matrix Care and today's guests, thanks for listening. And we hope to have you back for another episode of the Matrix Care Podcast.